I would definitely recommend a career in science, especially with a quantitative bent. And not only because being a pure scientist is this great thing, it is a great thing, but also because those kinds of skills just are widely translatable to lots of areas. I mean, you can't even imagine all the areas. I mean, I, actually, I have friends from undergraduate who went on to get their PhDs in physics, and one of them is now like a filthy rich um, Wall Street quantitative analyst. Not that I would necessarily recommend that, but that's just um, an illustration of how these, these quantitative problem-solving skills translate to topics you know, well outside of the sort of realm of classic physics or even science. This is Professional Confessionals. We're joined today by Tim Hall, a senior research scientist at the NASA Goddard Institute for Space Studies. Thank you so much for joining us, Tim. Thanks for having me. Please tell us what kind of research you do. I do research in climate change, extreme weather risk, extreme weather hazard, and how that's related to a changing climate. These must be frustrating days for you. It's exciting. There are frustrations, sure. But people who have skin in the game understand what's going on. Tell us about your path to the present moment. Where did you go to college? What did you plan to pursue? And at what point did you decide to pursue a career as a research scientist? I always wanted to be a scientist of some sort. I mean, that's kind of rare, probably. I think people, you know, switch and have different dreams and different passions along the way. For some reason, I got it in my head almost as early as I can remember. I wanted to be some kind of a scientist. I'd like to read books about black holes and the origins of the universe and things like that. So I had my brain wrapped around either astrophysics or some kind of theoretical physics. And that, you know, went through high school physics. And I went to college at a small liberal arts school, Wesleyan in Connecticut, because I also liked music and they had a good music program. And then I, I majored in physics there. And then I went on to get a PhD in physics at Cornell. What did you do after getting your degree from Cornell? The first thing I did was I was a postdoctoral fellow. We're actually where I work now at this NASA GISS, Goddard Institute for Space Studies. We call it GISS or GISS. I was a postdoc there in the um, early mid-90s. GISS sits on Columbia University's campus in New York City. So a lot of people who work at GISS are employed through Columbia. And initially I was employed through Columbia. And then I... Um, I'm just giving you the whole trajectory, but yeah, yeah, then yeah. I uh, did a little world tour as a, a roving uh, academic. I worked in um, Paris for about a year and a half at a research center there, and then I moved across the other side of the planet and worked in Melbourne, Australia for about two and a half years at a university there, and I came back to NASA GIST Columbia 1998, I think it was. And basically, I've been there ever since. 2002, I became a permanent NASA staff scientist, and I've been there ever since. I mean, I've done different, I've worked in different niches in the area. It's kind of a broad interdisciplinary area, so there's a lot of different ways to approach it. But I've been, in terms of my professional employment, that's where I've been mm -hmm. for a long time. So what, what are the other niches that you've worked in? I started out, I mean, actually... When I got to Cornell, I was in physics at Cornell. I have a PhD in physics, and I wanted to do pure physics. I mean, I didn't have in my head at that point climate research or atmospheric science. I wanted to do pure physics. And somewhere after a couple of years at Cornell, 
I um, decided I wasn't going to be the next Einstein and that the problems that physicists were banging their heads against, people had been banging their heads against for generations. There was no low-hanging fruit left, so to speak. And I also I had some sort of environmental interests. Um, and at that time, quantitative climate research was really a new field because the computer resources were only just coming on board to do um, complex computer simulations of climate and to make it a really rigorous subject like that. Very interdisciplinary, people from physics, applied math, chemistry, meteorology, oceanography, things like that. So um, I, I looked around the Cornell and Cornell didn't really have anything going on in that area. I was thinking about leaving Cornell, um, looking at other programs, but I'd already passed my admission to candidacy exam in physics, so I didn't want to cost me an extra two years or something to go somewhere else. So I found a group that was doing the physics of the near-Earth space environment. That was as close to Earth as I could find, essentially. And that was a very interesting group, and I got to do a lot of great work. I, I set up equipment all over the Earth. I'm looking at the ionosphere, the remote parts of the upper atmosphere. They're not, it's not part of the atmosphere that's related to climate, but it was still interesting applied science and applied physics. But I had in my head that as a postdoc afterwards, I would look for, I would sort of move down in the atmosphere and look for um, research appointments that um, were more directly related to climate change. And that's what I did. So, I mean, I, I had a couple of offers coming out of Cornell, but um, the one I liked the best was working at this uh, NASA laboratory in New York on the Columbia campus, whose, whose focus was mostly researching climate change and computer simulations of climate, projections of a changing climate. And so what was it specifically about climate change that drew you to, to that area? It was societally relevant and compelling. It blended, you know, my interests and concerns about environmental issues with my quantitative background. I like the fact that it was and still is quite interdisciplinary. You have people in all different backgrounds. And then, and especially it, to keep that fruit metaphor going, at that time, and even now, but especially at that time, there was a lot of low-hanging fruit. There were really sort of basic things to be done, to be elucidated, that you could get in as a, as a young scientist and make a difference. Whereas in pure theoretical physics, the problems that remain are so difficult, it take generations to make progress. That was my view of it. You never considered another career? I wouldn't quite say never. I mean, left fielder for the Boston Red Sox, that was a long time ago. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I ruled that one out pretty quickly, and, but um, probably by about like, sixth grade or something, but <laughs> I mean, music, I play guitar. I've played in bands various times over the years and, and my brother is a professional musician. So I understood the appeal of that also. Actually, another thing I remember is when I first got to Wesleyan as an undergraduate, as a freshman, I did have in my head that maybe somehow being a physicist was not the most practical career I could choose in terms of salary down the road or, uh, job prospects somehow. I mean, I did know that being a, a theoretical physicist probably meant looking for, you know, a faculty position at a research university. And those jobs were few and far between and quite competitive. So I thought about um, economics because I knew I was good at math and I knew it was a quantitative subject. And I, so my very first semester freshman year, I enrolled in honors physics and I enrolled in calculus-based economics 
it just turned out that the physics professor was terrific, was great, and the economics professor was not nearly as good. So <laughs> that difference impacted me down the road. You think that decided it for you? Well, I can't say for sure. Things like that can make a difference. I mean, you know, they're critical junctures along the way. I mean, you have a drive to do something that, that you know, that's interesting to you and that uses your skills well, but there's not only just one path that's like that, that satisfies that. So um, in this case, I, I did have other possibilities in my mind, although I liked physics a lot. I thought, well, I might like economics too. But the quality of the professors decided it for me that in freshman year in college. And did you have any role models in the field? Is there anyone that you were looking up to? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, you might think, oh, you know, Uncle Joe was a physicist or something, <laughs> or, or my dad was, you know, an engineer. Um, not really. I mean, my dad is a, he's retired now, but he was a, a lawyer. He was an environmental lawyer. So I think the environmental interests might have come from my dad. But also he's a guy who um, just admires intellectual thought and puts that really at the top of the pedestal. So I think maybe just his um, curiosity was one of the elements that got me interested in it. But I can't, I mean, it's so far back, it's a little fuzzy. It's hard for me to, you know, sort of pinpoint where exactly I, I must have read some article somewhere about black holes and National Geographic, and it just, it just sort of captured my curiosity. Were there key moments in your career that lifted your skill level or were a key to your success? Well, it's in my head because I just mentioned that um, physics professor I had freshman year. I just think he was very inspirational. The topic honors mechanics, which if you're taking physics, might sound familiar or not. And it involved a component of special relativity. And he was, in fact, a theoretical physicist who specialized in the theory of general relativity and gravity. And I remember just, you know, really pouring time into those problem sets and, and, and really clicking. I also had in high school, I had a, a kind of charismatic but strange physics teacher, a real character. I mean, sort of half, you know, brilliant pedagogue and half carnival barker. It's, it's kind of hard to characterize. <laughs> And Dr. Barwick, we called him. We're never He never really quite revealed what he had a PhD in. But, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I mean, I took physics and then AP physics in high school. And um, that really cemented my desire to go into some kind of, at least some kind of science that involved, you know, sort of quantitative mathematical analysis. So it was intellectual curiosity that drove your choices. You knew, as you mentioned earlier, that something in the sciences would be the way for you to find the right place for your skills and for your own satisfaction. I think there's truth in that, but I don't want to, it makes me sound too grandiose or something. I mean, I, it's intellectual curiosity and satisfaction is a big part of it. But also, once you get into something, I think this is true for a lot of fields. I mean, it, it was true for me. There's also, there's a competition. There's a sense that you, you're pretty good at something. And so you get the accolades of confirmation that you're good at it. You know, and I, my physics major friends in college, you know, we all, wanted to go on and get PhDs. So we were sort of competitive with each other. Who could, you know, we'd, there'd be a problem set with five problems and we had 24 hours to work on. The first four, you know, we could do in the first three or four hours. And then the final one by design was really, really hard. So we'd stay up until four in the morning and this competition about who could make progress on it. And so there is kind of a, I'm good at this. Therefore, it's 
interesting to me. There's there's that element too. I mean, those things are kind of intertwined in a complicated way. So it's it's intellectually satisfying, but also it's satisfying because if you're good at something, then that that feels good to be good at and to be told you're good at it. What traits or characteristics do you think are necessary to thrive in this field? Well, some basic facility with math and quantitative analysis, but you don't have to be a, like some kind of precocious mathematical genius by any means. You can't be afraid of math, and, and but as long as you have an interest in it and just you know some basic skill at it, and you're willing to work and you love the subject and you're willing to put in long hours, I mean, it's, it's incredibly rewarding. The best part of it is problem solving, really, and puzzles, really, puzzles putting together pieces from different things that have bounced around your brain because you've been working on it for a long time. And, and when something all comes together and it works out, it's, you know, it's incredibly satisfying. So we can say you find your work fulfilling? Sure. Yeah. I mean, not 100%. I'm waiting for the other foot to drop and you're going to ask me what aspects aren't fulfilling. So I'll have a long laundry list there also. But, but you know, in the big picture from, you know, the start of how I got interested in it as a kid to the current day. Yeah, overall, very fulfilling. Nice. How do you think your profession has changed you? What have you become more or less of? It's probably made me more of an analytic thinker. I mean, you, you know, I think that that skill is a skill you want to have a bit of already to get involved in it. But then once you're in it and, and, that, and you think that way professionally, it sort of reinforces that. And you tend to think you tend to apply that those thought processes to other parts of your life, too, which works sometimes and doesn't work other times. <laughs> <laughs> Is there anything that surprised you or that you were unaware of in this field? Well, by this field, I'm, I'm now thinking in particular of of climate research mm -hmm. as opposed to sort of physics because I don't really wouldn't really call myself a physicist anymore I mm -hmm. mean it's really um I have a hard time knowing what to call myself professionally but you know climate scientist I suppose or atmospheric scientists but it's a it's really kind of an applied physics area I use the tools that I learned in physics which are mostly sort of mathematical analysis tools and applying them to problems and climate science. And my particular niche really, I didn't mention this, my particular niche in the last 10 years really is hurricane hazard analysis and hazard analysis of other types of storms. What are the odds of a major hurricane hitting Miami-Dade County over the next 10 years? And how, do those odds, how are those odds changing in time as climate evolves? So what surprises me? Well, I suppose the ex how sort of extremely politicized the subject has become. And I don't understand why that's warranted exactly, because it's fundamentally not a political subject. I mean, it's based just on data analysis and you know, sort of laws of physics and, and chemistry and applying them to the world we see around us. So that's surprising and, you know, sometimes discouraging. There's an element of reality denialism in the political backlash against any findings of science. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, that's it's broader than just climate research. It's a kind of like a, a denial of the importance of expertise in general, the suspicion about anyone who's considered an expert. An empirical fact. Right. Which right. is the only thing we have to go on. Yeah. 
Yes. Yeah, a rejection of the facts. It's like, really? Anyway, were there major obstacles or challenges that you had to overcome? Yeah, sure. I mean, it was, you know, the whole path is filled with challenges. I'm still overcoming them. Some of them are there by design. I mean, when you're a graduate student, you have to pass various exams. You have to write your dissertation. I remember somewhere probably, you know, in the second half of my undergraduate physics major realizing I am never going to have the same intuitive kind of deep understanding of the subject that I had when, you know, in high school physics or freshman or sophomore physics in college, you know, there, there are certain subjects that it just gets harder. And that was certainly true when I, when I got to Cornell and I took the first, uh, you know, you typically take classes still as a graduate student, the first three semesters or so, four semesters. And somewhere in there, I realized I'm um, wow, this, is, this stuff is really hard. And I was kind of symbol manipulating without having a physical understanding of what the equations were describing. That experience was actually a large part of what pushed me away from being a pure physicist. I realized how, how difficult the problems were that modern pure physics is trying to address, whereas the tools I'd already mastered were really well suited to analyze problems in other areas of science that still had a lot of low-hanging fruit. So, I mean, that was a challenge. That was a challenge. You know, it's a challenge to get to a certain point and realize that where do I sort of cut my losses in this one really particularly narrow course, broaden my perspective at least a little bit? Would it be better to take what I have already and apply it in in a somewhat different area? And would that be more fruitful? And, you know, there are challenges now, and and I'm I'm very glad I made that decision. I think it was the right way to go for me. I mean, now in my work, you know, there are um, all sorts of complicated, boring, bureaucratic, administrative aspects to um, working for NASA or any job, really, that seemingly, at least superficially, unrelated to, you know, solving problems and doing science. So that's challenging and can be frustrating. Is that the downside you alluded to earlier? Yeah, I mean... I wouldn't want to exaggerate that because I I'm, I don't have an illusion that there's any job that doesn't have something downsides and frustrating aspects. But sure, I mean, uh, the one of the things I like the least, or you know, really don't like doing, is writing proposals, uh, and we definitely have to do that. We have to we're constantly sort of trying to drum up money for working on this particular little area or that particular little area, or sort of drum up resources to um, pursue research in some particular niche. And we have to write long proposals that involve many weeks of work integrating the bureaucracies from different institutions, because often they're not just with NASA scientists, they're collaborations with Columbia or other universities. And they don't always get funded. So just, oh my God, I just like wasted six weeks of work for something that, you know, didn't get funded in the end. And Who are the people making the decisions about what gets funded? NASA program managers. I mean, they're basically, they're, they're also scientists who have morphed into full-time bureaucrats. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I have a certain, I have certain bureaucratic responsibilities I have to do also. I mean, just for example, at my lab, we're not all just NASA civil servants, there are also people who work through Columbia, but then there are also their contractors who uh, do a lot of the computer support and building support. 
And so they have a they have an annual contract and that contract has to be managed by a civil servant in a certain regard and, and the budgets have to be, you know, kept track of, et cetera. I didn't volunteer for this. I was sort of volunteered to <laughs> take on this role when someone who had previously done it had retired. So yeah, I mean, but you know, overall, it's a pretty good gig. I mean, it's not that high of a price to pay. So you would recommend it to people who are suited for it? Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, I would definitely recommend a career in science, especially, you know, with a quantitative bent. I mean, and not only because, you know, being a pure scientist is this great thing. It is a great thing. But also because those kinds of skills just are widely translatable to lots of areas. I mean, you can't even imagine all the areas. I mean, I, actually, I have friends who went on from undergraduate who went on to get their PhDs in physics. And one of them is now like, a, you know, in, you know, a filthy rich um, Wall Street quantitative analyst. But <laughs> not that I would necessarily rec- recommend that, but that's just um, an illustration of how these skills, these quantitative problem solving skills translate to topics, you know, well outside of the sort of realm of classic physics or even science. And science is so critical to our human civilization, and we need it now more than ever before. So it kind of seems a waste to waste it on Wall Street to me. But there are plenty of things that use quantitative analysis that are, you know, are easily, I mean, playing devil's advocate, these people do have reasons to exist. Here's an example that's directly taken from the area I work in. A lot of the meetings I go to, about half the people in the meetings are not scientists. They work in the reinsurance and insurance industry. And because these are the people I mentioned earlier who have skin in the game in terms of climate change. I mean, literally, they've got, you know, tens, hundreds of millions of dollars in portfolios that are exposed to climate hazard. And they typically have quantitative backgrounds and they talk about things like, how are we going to develop new insurance products for, you know, this evolving and increasing risk? And one of the ways they do it is to, to spread the risk to um, financial markets. And some of these people end up being like hedge fund quants. And so you might think, I mean, yeah, they're in it for the, for the bucks, true. But the products they're developing do actually have a role in adapting to climate, a changing climate. Tell us about your proudest moments and biggest disappointments within your career? A little hard to point to. I mean, you, I can point to sort of awards I've got, like, you know, best paper of the year at my lab or things like that. And I'm really proud of those for sure. When I've been working on developing, you know, a large piece of computer code to to address a particular problem I'm interested in, and, you know, and I finally get it to work, you know, I finally get all the pieces to come together and it spits out a result that's interesting but still makes sense and it's consistent with everything else I know but pushes it to a new level. Yes, and in the end, if, you know, I, I give a talk and the talk is well-received about it or I write a paper and a reviewer says that's really cool or something like that, then that's just further affirmation. But the, the proudest woman is really an internal one when mm-hmm. I realize it works. That's excellent. Yeah. Yeah. That's I'm part of your fulfillment. Yeah. Right. And what about disappointments? Disappointments. <laughs> so those, forget those, that. Those proposals um, you have to write. Yeah. Right? Well, I mean, I had. A, <laughs> I'm, I'm really sort of um, hitting that one hard because there was a proposal that it was about a year and a half ago. I submitted it, and it was a particularly hard proposal. It was it was from a NASA program that was encouraging outreach to private sector stakeholders. 
I was the principal investigator, the PI, the lead on the on the proposal, but it was very complicated administratively because we had my NASA lab, we had Columbia, we had a scientist from City College, we had a scientist from SUNY Buffalo, and we had this this company called Jupiter Intelligence that does climate risk analysis. So it was just to integrate all those four bureaucracies was a lot of work, not not to mention, you know, putting together a compelling, compelling sort of scientific story. Didn't, it even got good scientific reviews, but it just didn't get funded. So it's just it was very frustrating because it's just a huge amount of work and uh, thinking that it's a, a really strong project and to not get funded is, is disappointing. Those things go up and down. I mean, that's I'm still harping on that. I guess I still have a grudge about it a year and a half <laughs> later. But <laughs> um, Is there ever an opportunity to resubmit something like that, like down the line? You know, different government programs have different funding cycles, and mm-hmm. it's, it's mixed here and there. And, and Earth and climate science and NASA tends to be every two or three or four years, a particular area will sort of resolicit. Um, so I, I probably have a couple of years for that particular program to resolicit for proposals. That, I don't think that was a very good answer to your question, though, because that's kind of a that's a little fluctuation in the near term. But I'm trying to look at a bigger disappointment, you know. I was quite happy to go to Cornell for graduate school in physics, but it was not my first choice. My first choice is actually um, Cal Berkeley, which is one of the premier physics departments in the world. So is Cornell, but um, Cal's even maybe, you know, Cal might be in the top five and Cornell's in the top 10 or something. And also my senior year in college, I finished the semester early. My girlfriend, who was a junior at the time, was spending her junior year at Berkeley. And so I went out and I hung out with her, just totally distracting her spring semester that year. And I just was absolutely in love with the area. I just fell in love with it. And I didn't get into that. I didn't get into Berkeley. So that was, that was, that was a disappointment. But none of my kids want to be physicists. There's a disappointment. <laughs> That's a disappointment. <laughs> Do you generally like the people you work with, the others that have been attracted to this field and who work alongside as colleagues? Yeah, yeah, I do. Um, and I tend to, um, just maybe my personality, I, I tend to like to work often solo, but usually like just with a very small group, just one or two other collaborators. Um, some people like to work in big teams and different personalities, you know, are sort of suited to different structures. I like to work just a couple of collaborators and, you know, and it's very rewarding when you're both working on something and, you know, there are a couple of outstanding issues that need still need to be sort it out before you can put it together into a story and a paper. And when I solve one of those issues and my colleague says, wow, that's cool. Great. Then it's like, yeah, I feel really good. And it doesn't, you know, it's, that's, again, that's not like a widespread accolade. It's not like, oh, you know, I got quoted in the New York times or something, or I got some, you know, some society award or anything like that. It's just the one or two people you're working with who's opinion you really respect highly as professionals, you know, recognize what you did. And that's very rewarding. So I'm putting myself in the position of someone who might consider climate scientist, atmospheric scientist as a profession. Mm -hmm. And the first thing that comes to mind is that uh, climate scientists today in today's environment are sort of like under siege and it might give me pause. Uh, to go into a field that seems controversial <laughs> when it's not, but it's been made so by, I guess, ignorance. What I want to know is 
what would you say to, to the young folks who are thinking that way? And I mean, do you feel the effects of that or you just do your work and the political thing is whatever it is and eventually that will change and it usually comes around to science, to the viewpoints and the facts that are presented? Yeah, I mean, in the big picture, you know, the facts are the facts and the laws of physics are the laws of physics and there are always uncertainties, but, you know, you're guided by your analytical analysis as a scientist to reach certain conclusions. And those conclusions in this case have, you know, societal impact and people who are impacted really can't avoid appreciating that. I mean, if your neighborhood is flooded out, you know, three times in 10 years and it hasn't been flooded in the previous 50, it's hard to call it Joe, call it Fred, call it climate change. It doesn't matter. You're at risk. And so um, I think that the, the kind of political noise coming from the very top mostly can be filtered out. I say mostly, but not completely, because, I mean, our lab has been lucky that we haven't, haven't been censored. You know, if you look at our website, it still says that 2017 was the warmest year in record. And, and you know, months since then have been close seconds. I know that EPA and other government agencies have had more issues so in terms of the science, though, I think you can be a good scientist in this area, and you can find lots of ways to get support to do that, not only working in government labs, but also in universities and, or in the private sector, as I mentioned. Probably where the high-level political impact is more on what are we doing about it, you know? And, and that, and as a scientist, you probably do have an opinion. You have a well-informed opinion about it, and you think, this is pretty urgent. We ought to be doing something. You don't really have, other than, you know, some of my colleagues might go in some congressional subcommittee meeting or I was involved in the National Climate Assessment, which is a government report that comes out every few years about the state of the climate and how it's impacting the U.S. Other than that, I mean, you know, you're not sitting there voting on congressional committees or anything or negotiating international deals. So those high-level things about what we're going to do about it, whether we're going to have long-term mitigation by reducing fossil fuel emissions, whether they're gonna, how we're going to adapt to um, you know, coastal populations that are under siege by rising sea levels. You know, it's frustrating because those things are impacted, of course, by high-level political decisions. There, there are plenty of opportunities to do the science. Knowing what you know now, hmm. is there anything that you'd do differently? In my professional life? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's all I'm talking about here. But, um <laughs> can wonder about things. I mean, opportunities I didn't take at the time, what it, what it would have been like. Um, I mean, I had once I got an offer for a faculty position at University of Wisconsin at Madison, and they have a really good department. And I think what it would have been like then, I mean, I would have taught a lot more and I, I, heard, I do essentially no teaching now. I'd like to think I could have been a pretty decent teacher. So I maybe have missed out on a little bit of the, the teaching opportunity. I've had a couple of graduate students over the years, but I would have had a lot more if I'd been there. But there were good reasons not to take it at the times. I feel incredibly lucky that I don't have any good example, you know, mm -hmm. to answer your question with. <laughs> That's wonderful. Yeah. Is there anything that you've always wanted to do or achieve that you haven't yet? Well, I made a, an album with the rock band that was a bucket list item. So. <laughs> 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 Never made it to Antarctica. I remember as a graduate student, the, the group I worked with 
traveled to obscure places all over the globe, setting up equipment to study the remote reaches of the upper atmosphere. And I did a few of those trips to Arctic Scandinavia, one in um, the South Pacific, South Pacific Atoll. And I always had in my head, oh, eventually I'm going to go to Antarctica. You know, just everyone goes to Antarctica eventually. Everyone were like this incredibly rarefied group of people that I hung out with. But, <laughs> um, but I kind of moved on to more sitting in front of a, a computer terminal rather than going off in the field and making measurements. So I, I, if I ever make it to Antarctica, it'll be more of a tourist than as a scientist. In your off time, when you leave work? Do you have science spinning around in your brain a lot of the time? Are you thinking about problems you're working on? Yeah, that's a good question. And um, the short answer is yes, for sure. And the longer answer is that um, because I work from home a lot, my lab has a pretty um, flexible telecommuting policy. That's great because it's an hour and 45 minutes to some office in the city. I work from home a lot. And you know, one of the consequences of that, I mean, I think even if I went into the city every day, I would still have science buzzing around my brain. But it's even more so because my office is just the spare bedroom upstairs, right? And so I, I've often got things running on my my workstation, you know, I, I'm making dinner or something, and I'll just run up and make sure nothing's collapsed or fallen over or some power surge didn't shut down my, my workstation. Yeah, so it's a there's uh, maybe not as clean a separation between work life and non-work life as in some other fields. But that's okay because I'm really interested in my work life. You know, if I hated my job, I would get home and the last thing I wanted to do would do anything related to it. I've got to have like, you know, a 12-hour break from it or whatever. But that's not the case here. I mean, often I'm excited to see how these computer simulations are going to come out. I know they're going to be done tomorrow morning, but I'm staring at numbers flowing across the screen and I'm the separation is pretty blurry. Would you say you love what you do? Yeah, not the proposal writing part. No, no, no. <laughs> not, not, the, not the, you know, the NASA bureaucratic part, but the science part, yes. And that's more than enough of my job to keep me satisfied overall. What advice would you give someone who is considering a career in this field? Uh, I mean, the first thing would be go for it. It's, it's, it's great. And I would, I would also say, don't be too specific about what you study as an undergraduate. Like, don't think, I want to study, you know, the melting of the Arctic, you know, ice or something. And so you think, that's what I got to study in college. I got to find courses on that. I got to find. But you, actually, what you should do is take a broad range of science courses. You know, you major in physics or chemistry or, or maybe applied math. You just learn a broad set of tools that, and then, you know, later on in your career, maybe graduate school or maybe even later on, you sort of specialize in one particular area. Don't specialize too early. Anything that we didn't cover that you feel would be particularly helpful for young people considering a science path? Well, I would just add another comment on what I just said. And the other thing about not specializing is that it's hard to predict exactly, you know, a career's twists and turns. And so, um, you may think that, oh, I really want to study, you know, rising sea level or something. And then as you're going along, something else crop, crops up that's really interesting or for whatever reasons, reasons out of your control, you have to switch gears a bit. And if you have a broader training, then you're more flexible. You can pick up the sort of track in a slightly different direction as opposed to being really specialized. Thank you, Tim. Thanks, Tim. Thanks for listening. To hear more and subscribe, visit our website, professionalconfessionals.com. 
You can find Professional Confessionals on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts.